And we're back. This is uh, Darren and Nicholas, and we're with Behind the Vinyl on Pyro Rock Radio. Uh, this week, we're talking about uh, the biggest debut album of all time, mm. and probably one of the greatest debut albums of all time. It is uh, Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. Yep. Um, this is this is an, an album that we actually said, ah, let's not do that for a while because <laughs> of uh, because it's such an obvious. Yeah. Choice for uh, for something like this, yeah. that and Metallica's Black Album, right? Yeah, um, but you know what? It just needs to be done, or it's it's good to be done because it's a fucking great record, man. It is, and there's lots of little bits and bobs from from the outcome of it. There is. Um, it's a record that sold forty million copies or something, which is nuts, unbelievable. But yeah, that that is, uh, I think, one of those albums that had a profound impact on me when it came to music uh so on that one and like back in black with acdc or um, van halen's first one um motley cruz shouted the devil uh appetite for destruction um still as good today um still i'm still as fascinated today with that album as i was back then um, I can remember this album stopping me. I was I was a young, I was super young, like maybe thirteen or fourteen or something like that when it came out. But I can remember this was stopping me going to parties at night because we yeah. had MTV. Yeah, and there was like, you know, hey, they're going to play some Guns N' Roses, right? Stuff, you know, um, yeah, they had the videos. They also had live at the Roxy back then. Yeah, they had interviews. So if there was a chance of Guns N' Roses being on MTV, and we had this show in Australia called Rage. Right, started at midnight, so if there was a chance of Guns N' Roses, I wouldn't go to the party. <laughs> you know, everyone would be like, oh, "Fuck, let's go out." I'd be like, "Ah, oh, I'm staying home." Yeah, yeah. It had that much, that much effect. And we talked about when bon- when we did the Bon Jovi behind the vinyl for Slippery mm. When Wet, that that had a very like it was like Beatlemania. Yes, all over again for Bon Jovi. Yep, and I think that was tenfold, but in a different way for Guns N' Roses. Yeah. I think it was like the second coming. It was like, holy shit, this is the real deal. This is as true as our generation will get. Yeah. This was our, like, to me, Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath are just yes. through and through true. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think Guns N' Roses were just through and through just true. There was everyone that saw them. I know last week we talked about Poison. Yeah. And you were saying the producer just. Went to the show with Poison, went yeah. to the Guns N' Roses show yeah. and said, no matter what you do, <laughs> yeah. how many records you'll yeah. sell, you'll never be as good as these yeah. guys. And I think everyone had that that feeling. Yeah. I think like, a funny thing that, that a friend of mine came up with, like he, he came up with this idea just about a year ago uh, where it's always said that um, grunge killed the whole Sunset Strip thing. And his theory is that that Appetite for Destruction kind of killed it. Because Appetite for Destruction was so more real. Uh, it was, um, you know, it was more dirty, gritty. The stuff they sang about was different from what Quiet Riot and Rat and Motley Crue and all those bands did. Those bands did. I mean, Motley Crue sang about, you know, drugs and so on, but in a different way. Absolutely. Guns N' Roses, they were in that whole thing they were living in the streets um trying to make ends meet in, in every possible way 
and nothing was ever the same after that album. And then after that album, that whole scene kind of started dying out. You had all these one-hit wonders that the major labels tried to sign that got one album and then they disappeared. Then later on, early 90s, gun, uh, grunge came along and, and totally killed it. But I think it makes sense in a way that we didn't have lyrics, um, thinking like My Michelle and stuff like that. And yeah. There were no, no such thing before that. Um, it was a gritty record. Yeah. And, and like, well, everyone knows about the, the, the side A and side B story. Yeah. You know, on Guns N' Roses, it's side G and side R. Yeah. And the side G being the, the rougher, heavier, yes. you know, more violent, <laughs> you know, welcome to the jungle. Yeah. Out to get, out to get me and, um, you know, I've just drawn a blank of, of, of the track listing for the record, you know. Um, but yeah, like Welcome to the Jungle, It's So Easy, Night Train, Out to Get Me, Mr. Brownstone, yeah. you know, stuff like that, more yeah. more aggressive, while yeah. Side B is more the love songs, yeah. you know, the, um, you know, the, yeah, the, the, the more love songs, the more more gentle songs. You yeah. Know? But also you had, you had that album cover, which was also, I mean, that there'd been album covers before that that were controversial and so on and and going back you had like in 1983 84 you had wasp with the meat and all that stuff and you know cutting a woman on stage and all that but that that album cover was different as well it was different as well but it goes back to what you were saying like i think there was things were contrived you know and things were manipulated yeah. and put on yeah. And Guns N' Roses was the real fucking deal. Axl they Rose were. was as real as it gets. Yeah. You know? Nutcase. A, a nutcase. <laughs> yeah. You know? And there's few bands that few bands that have ever been as as full on as that. Yeah, know? no. No. They were one of a kind, uh, most definitely. Um and and a funny thing was that uh, that's also something that's funny with music and stuff. That now Matt, no matter how nerdy you are, you always find out new things. Right, yeah. And I remember watch um since well you turned me on to Dean Del Rey. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Let yeah. There Be Talk, his podcast, where he does a lot of cool people. And he's done like one or two interviews with Duff McKagan. Uh and Duff McKagan said, and I listened to this last year, last summer. Duff McKagan said that one of the initial ideas for the album cover cover was a picture of the uh, Challenger, yeah, um, yeah, the space shuttle yeah. explosion. But um, which Time magazine used, right? Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, I'd never heard that before. That was I, totally you know new for me. I'd, I'd never heard that before, but since then. I've heard it three or four times. Oh, okay. Axel okay. Rose has also said it in All an right. interview as well. Oh, okay. So cool. And one thing I didn't know: they obviously they reissued the record like in two thousand and eight. They reissued Appetite for Destruction, as well as this new one. Yeah. But they reissued again in in two thousand. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> I didn't realize that they were going to then use the uh, the, the Robert Williams. Oh cover all right yeah for the reissues okay but at the last minute at the 11th hour kind of like they did for you know for its debut yeah release yeah. uh they pulled out yeah. and and just ran it as a straight reissue yeah that's fascinating it's fascinating yeah absolutely it's fascinating how it still can be how it can still be controversial in in and in, in this day and age after all this time um 
I, I think I think people are getting more conservative. In a way, like, yes. Like the, sure. the 80s and we talked yep. last last week, we did the behind the vinyl with, with Poison yeah. and all the the sex and yep. the women. Yep. That can't really happen now. No, like Jesus. Like it no, no, no. in the 80s. No, the, no. The drug, the drug use, the excessive drug use and the being tolerant of yep. a band like Guns N' Roses yep. or a band like Motley Crue. Yep. I tell you right now, it would never fucking happen. No, they could never walk into my office and, <laughs> no, and act absolutely like absolutely not. No, but then they could. Yeah. Why was that the case? Yeah, um, fascinating in, in so many different ways. Yeah, I don't know. Um, different times for sure, um, and they they really put a stamp on it uh, with that attitude. Hey, let's play some music. Here's the opening track. This is kind of what started it all. Uh, welcome to the jungle. So, the album was basically flopping. Yeah, it was seven seven months in. It had sold. 200,000 copies, yep. which is not a great deal. Um, they, they, they paid, what was it, $375,000 to make that record, which is not a lot of money. Right. So $375,000 plus an extra $75,000, which is not a lot of money, advanced yeah, for the to band. Guns N' Roses. Yeah. yeah. So that's not, not a lot of money. They, no. Obviously, they had promotion and all this kind of stuff, but they had not- Overly invested, but no. they were expecting a lot. This is a band everyone wanted. Yeah. This is uh, Tom Zuant who signed Motley Crue, for instance. Exactly. He signed Guns N' Roses. Yeah. And I think it's pretty legendary. He walked in. He didn't even stay for two songs. Exactly. He saw like yeah. one song and realized, yeah. fuck, this is, yeah. <laughs> this is, you know, the band. Of, yeah. Um, this is the greatest band that it will ever be. Yeah. And he went to... Uh, he went to Geffen Records the next day where he worked and 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 said, "This is greatest." Band. Yeah, didn't he also? He walked out from the club and then, kind of on his way out, he told all the other guys from the record label, "Oh, this is pure shit." Right? Yeah, I think so because <laughs> there was something like six or eight other yeah. record labels yeah, there. Exactly. Because <laughs> um, these guys were the hot band. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, the hot band. Yeah. Um, but but it goes back to the fact the album was stalling. Yeah. You know, and it makes you wonder how many other records like this I could. You know what? I could name some, you know. Faster Pussycat uh, came out same year. Right, yeah. But um, I, mean, I mean albums that should be the biggest albums of all time. Mm. Like this is only personal opinion, but uh, Jeff Buckley, Grace. Oh, you yes. Know, a, a phenomenal record. Yeah. I think one of the greatest records. Outside of rock, one of the – or it. outside of metal. Yep. Absolutely phenomenal record. Yes. It didn't really do that good. No. It's cult following. Yeah, it's, today it is. But it didn't really sell that great. No. And it's it's kind of weird why some records just don't don't really. Yeah, especially if you look at like uh, we said last time with Poison, who had a major success with Look What the Cat Dragged In, the first album. Uh, and then you have uh, Guns N' Roses with Appetite for Destruction with just hit song after hit song on that album. And still, it took about, I mean, it was released in 1987. It took until, I guess, 1988 or something. 
before it really exploded in the U.S. and then the rest of the world, Absolutely. which is really weird. Yeah, because people must have still, you know, since you know, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand people bought it. Yeah, and they must have loved it, and uh, still nothing really happened. Yeah, until MTV. So the MTV story, everyone knows. So let's not go into this too much. Um, the label was going to not drop the band, but they were going to like cut their losses, yep. stop working, move on. Yep. Which would have would have meant the death of the record. Yes. Um, Tom Zuran didn't accept it. Goes into David Geffen's David David Geffen's office himself, and actually, I saw a little interview with him where he talks about David Geffen being on the phone and David Geffen hanging up the phone and going. <laughs> Have you seen this? Where he says, "What no. are you doing in my office without a without a meeting?" Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, which I thought was fucking classic. Um, so he said, "Hey, they're gonna they're gonna kill the record. Whoever's yeah. the, the person running your label yeah. is going to kill this record. I need a favor. Yeah. We need to do something." And so David Geffen rung up MTV, who had sworn that they weren't going to exactly. um, play this record because yep. they were a bunch of drug addicts and like misfits and all this kind of stuff. And, oh, yeah. And uh, there was a guy, I'm just kind of looking for his name now. Um, there was a guy who who basically owned um, the majority of um, of the networks, which MTV. Right, you know, yeah, the, yeah. The cable, yeah. the cable platforms. And he was the one that said it was never, we, if you were going to play this band, how he knew about Guns N' Roses, I don't know. No. But he would kick MTV off their platform, which basically would kill MTV. Okay, wow. But somehow David Geffen called in a favour yeah. and he got the song played once on a Sunday night. Yes. At Sunday stroke Monday. Yeah. Yeah. So effectively Monday morning, 4 a.m. New York time, 1 a.m. LA time. Yeah. And legend has it that they received so many calls. Yes. That the, the, uh, the switchboard exactly caught fire. Yeah. Have you heard that story? Yeah. Physically, supposedly there's a little uh, little um, spark or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whenever a call comes through. Yeah. And there was ten thousand simultaneous yeah. calls that caused it to uh, to physically ignite. Yeah. And uh, the next Monday, so the story begins. So the story <laughs> begins. Next Monday they added it. Yeah. And within a week they'd sold double the amount of records. Yeah. And also, I because I uh, I interviewed Nigel Dick, who did all their first videos. Unfortunate name. Exactly, uh, British guy who also did uh, do the news Christmas. He did that video. Oh, the, really? The Band Aid video. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said that Welcome to the Jungle uh, cost around eighty to ninety thousand dollars around that time, uh, and uh, the story of the video. Uh, came from Alan Niven, who uh, being the manager exactly. The uh, he was inspired by the movies Midnight Cowboy, A Clockwork Orange, and uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth, the David, Ooh, Bowie, David movie. Bowie movie. Yeah, um, and uh, Nigel also said that yeah, Alan Niven gave me the story. For example, where Axel. He sits in a chair, tries to get out of it. It's an electric chair, whatever it is. Uh, that idea came from a clockwork orange. Um, and uh, he also said that, yeah, they were. there were some problems uh, working with the band uh, early on. And, uh, and it, it was all about waiting for, waiting for Axel. 
Well, <clears throat> yeah, I think the um, I think that story has always been the case. Like, yeah. um, they they ended up settling on Mike Klink to to produce the record. Yep. Um, but they they jumped around in between producers for you know for pre production. I think the the most famous story is. Um, um, uh, Spencer Proffer, I think his name is, who did uh, Quiet Rise for yep. Metal Health. Yep. Had a massive hit. He also worked with Hard and Cheap Trick and Wasp and yep. Ian Hunter and stuff like that. <clears throat> so the story goes that he was recording the record and he was about to have his first kid and he kind of told the band he was having his first kid by cesarean section. Oh, okay. So he told the band, hey, on Friday we're having cesarean at the, at mm. the night time. Mm. So I'd like to leave at five o'clock. So can you get in here at twelve in the daytime, and I'll give you five hours. Right. But then I want to go yeah. to the hospital, yeah. you know, for my for the birth of my kid. Yeah. And the band all agreed. Come Friday, they didn't show up. Right. And so they all showed up really, really late. Okay. And supposedly Axel walked in and threw up on the mixing desk, <laughs> and Slash come in and and couldn't <laughs> wait to go to the toilet, so he just pissed on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and and he was like, "Fuck you guys, I'm out of here." Yeah. And he um he gave back his points for the record and okay. sold them for a cheap amount of money back the uh, the material wow. that he'd recorded. All right. Um. So there was that. There was also Paul Stanley was in the mix for a while. Mister Stanley Eisen was in there. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Which didn't end too well. No, um, I could never see him. Producing that kind of record, or, or I, I couldn't I can't see, see him producing anything outside of Kiss. To be no, honest with and you. I couldn't see him uh, working with those guys. No, he's this uh, healthy <laughs> and and these guys healthy kind of guy. Like it was them and no one else. Yeah, but also they worked with Manny Charlton from Nazareth. Yeah, now I'm they did some myself. demos with him. Yeah, because in the early 2000s, I was out to dinner with Manny Charlton. All right, yeah, yeah, and we talked about a lot of things. Yeah. We never talked about guns oh, and roses, and I've fucking I've kicked myself ever since. Like, why did I don't know why it never come up? Yeah, maybe maybe it did. Yeah, and he didn't want to talk about it. No, I don't know, but I just I can remember that. Fuck, how did that? Yeah, because I had him because I did two stories for um, when Guns and Roses played here last time. Was it 2017? Yeah, um, I did a story with. Vicky Hamilton, who was like the first manager for Guns N' Roses, absolutely, and, and who let the guy sleep on a sofa. Exactly, yep. and and I did a story and an interview with Nigel Dick, the uh, video director for for Sweden Rock Magazine, and I was in touch with Manny Charlton, who said, "Sure, interview, blah blah blah." Then nothing happened; didn't get back to me. And I was also in touch with Tom Sudhart. I found it on on Facebook, oh, and, really? and he said, "Yeah, interview, sure, absolutely." And then I tried contacting him; nothing happened. So. But um, yeah, Manny was in there, and those I think those um, demos um, they've been out there for a while. You can find them on YouTube. I don't know if those demos are part of the new deluxe uh, box thing, whatever. Can't remember. Yeah, I don't know. But it was also mixed by Steve Thompson and and Michael Barbera. Ba- ex- ba- yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and they were in in the in line to produce it as well. Yeah. Yeah, but they didn't want to, or they... No, and the thing with Mike Klink, because Mike Klink had done, like, Triumph, I yeah. think, the Canadian band before. He wasn't really a hotshot producer. No, but he'd done UFO. That was the reason, exactly. That was the reason. Why. That was the reason, yes, yeah. yes, yes, of course. And Axel loved yeah. UFO. Yeah, so, yeah. So that was the reason why Mike Klink and, 
and I think he kind of understood the guys a little bit better. Yeah. So, yeah. Mike, Mike Link also started doing a Justice for All. Of course he did, but that didn't work out. It yeah. didn't work out. Sure. So they go, went back to Fleming. Exactly. Yeah. There and he go. also did Rust in Peace. Oh, he did? Yeah. All right. So Cool. Megadeth. He became a hotshot. He became a hotshot. Where he is now, I have no idea. You, I tried yeah. to reach out to him. Yeah. But it just came back. The email came back. Inbox is full. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Strangers in the Night is the uh, um, the the UFO album that right really, right, which is also one of those live albums that is considered to be a kind of fake, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Which is live like a suicide. Yeah, you know, Guns <laughs> and Roses, definitely. You know, which is which is not even like pretending to be a fake. No, it's the the it's the audience the the sound of the audience uh, was taken from um, oh. Was it? Um, is one of those jams, right. California jam or Texas jam or whatever it is? That. Yeah, they stole it from there. Crazy. Hey, let's play some music. Um, this is Night Train. Night train on, on, on a side train. On a side note, I, yeah. um, night train. Everyone knows it's a drink. It's yeah. like a really cheap wine yeah. uh, that Guns N' Roses used to drink. Guns N' Roses used to buy it from this shop on Sunset. Right, right. Um, this this one particular shop because that's where they they kind of lived, or all their stripper yeah. friends would live around there. So they go to this one particular shitty rundown alcohol right. kind of tobacco shop. Yeah, um, and night train isn't really that popular because it's it's death in a bottle yeah but they still have it at that shop oh cool <clears throat> so i went and bought a couple of bottles of nitrine when i was in la a couple of years ago nice <clears throat> and this uh this this obvious born and bred and lived a hard life la person yeah he was probably about 60 years old or something um but possibly a street guy you okay. know like lived in the street he walked in when i was at the counter and he looked at me and he looked at the nitrine and then he looked at the cashier and he goes, uh, get him some Panadol as well. <laughs> <laughs> nice. True story. <laughs> nice. Of course. Yeah. Guns and fucking roses. <clears throat> so guns and roses, right? Um, you know, I don't know, really want to go into how the band come together because everyone knows that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of connection, you know, with previous bands like Road Crew, both. Duff and Steven and Slash were in the band. Yeah, Road you had Hollywood Rose. Hollywood Rose. With uh, Tracy Guns. Tracy Guns, who was in Guns and Roses yep. before he left and was replaced by Slash. Who, yep. he, he just didn't show up one day. Right, yeah. He literally just didn't show up. He got fed up with Axel. I think he yeah. just didn't show up. Um, and then there was also London, the band London, who, who um, Izzy, Izzy Stradlin was in London. He was? Izzy, Izzy Stradlin was in London, yeah. Huh. Um, Nikki Six was in London. Seems of like everybody Black, was in London Black, everyone, at one well, time or another. Yeah. That was the band in, yeah. in LA. London, uh, Nikki was in there. Blackie Lawless was yeah. in there. Izzy Stradlin was in there. Huh. Slash and Stephen Adler tried out for London but didn't make it. All right, cool. Yeah, and that's why they started Road Crew. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Nice. So interesting. So. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's, uh, it's, um, 
it is a fantastic album, but but also again, the, I think those those lyrics uh, in all of those songs uh, were something totally different uh, from the whole party glam kind of lipstick and leather kind of scene. And they also looked, I mean, they had more of that Hanoi Rocks kind of thing. They looked like they came off the street. Um, yep. They looked kind of dirty and, you know, yeah. like they've been around for a while. Yeah, <clears throat> well, again... Probably everyone knows this, but although they lived on the street, you know, and they uh, they lived in the rehearsal space and they had no money, and especially yep. Axel and Izzy, and they were living off strippers. Yep. Um, Slash and Stephen were were more, even though Slash is born in in, uh, in London or outside yeah, or or Stoke on Trent, whatever Stoke on Trent, yeah. <clears throat> um, they they had some bases. They had family. In yeah. There. Slash actually come from a good family. Yeah. Of Absolutely. A, of an art designer father and a like a a fashion designer mother yep. who who used to date David Bowie exactly. and, and make clothes for all of yeah. all of the music stars. He yeah. was actually friends with uh, with um, David Geffen. Yeah, exactly. Right. You've heard the I don't know whether everyone's heard the Christmas card story. No, not that one. Well, David Geffen sent Slash's mum a Christmas card because. He used to be good friends with Slash's mum, and right, and you know she'd do a lot of work for his yeah. artists. So she sent him a Christmas card and uh, said, "Oh, I hope you're doing well. Merry Christmas, all that kind of stuff." And she wrote back to him and said, "You know, really nice to hear from you. You actually signed my son. You know, and oh. I understand his band is <laughs> is doing quite well." And David Geffen was like, who's your son? Yeah. And she had to explain it was Slash from, from Guns N' Roses. <laughs> oh, man, that's nuts. That's pretty, pretty great. But I really, I think that if, if people haven't read or checked out uh, the book Reckless Road, oh. that is a fantastic book about the early days of Guns N' Roses in L.A., about almost every single show they played at, the Roxy, the Troubadour, the Whiskey A Go Go, all that. In the early years. Yeah. yeah. Written by Mark Cantor. Which was Slash's best friend. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> Who's a trippy little chap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but he his family owned Cantor's, Cantor's Deli. Deli. Yeah. yeah. Which which um again I didn't realise this, but it was the only deli that was open. Or it was the only place to eat. Oh, okay. After hours. All oh, right. So okay. that's why everyone went there. Right. Yeah. But I think, um, I think, um, who 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 was it? Mickey Mantle that married Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Joe DiMaggio. Joe, was it Joe DiMaggio? Yeah. Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Manson, uh, Marilyn Monroe met at Kansas Deli. All right. <clears throat> yeah. Nice. And Bob Dylan would hang out there. And Neil right. Young would hang out there. All right. And. Yeah, everyone would hang out yeah, there because yeah. it was the only place to eat after hours. Right. So everyone would go. And it's back still there. there. And it's still there. Yeah. And it's still going strong. Yeah. Um, I was there like a year ago. Oh, okay. Less than a year All right. Ago. Okay. And and um, Guns N' Roses used to go there because yeah. they'd get free food because yeah. Mark would give them food and they'd yeah. hang out there. And, um, and there's one of those classic early black and white photos where. The whole band is sitting in a sofa, which was taken at uh, at um, Cantor's Deli, probably by Mark Cantor. I can't remember, but yeah, yeah, 
But um, my, but that book, that book is just amazing. I just I went through it in you know couple hours just looking at all those pictures and he's got all the set lists and he talks about the shows because he recorded everything he he i think he was that like he's very anal and a little bit special and and you kind of get the feeling that he somehow he must have known i mean thinking that they were like hundreds of bands in LA at that time playing those clubs and trying to make it. But I mean, it must've been something, not just being a friend of Slash's, it must've been something about that band that made him record all those shows. And, you know, well, he, he said that. And, um, I, I don't really know how to say this, but Mark is, I've met him quite a few times yeah. now and he's, he's special. Yeah. You know, he's, he's not, um, he's not, Calculated or manipulative or right. out for money, right? He he just like r- really authentically yeah. loves his band, yeah. And you know, quite possibly, you know, he he just knew from the start, this yeah, was, yeah. This was going to be amazing. Yeah. These guys are absolutely amazing. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, and, um, and luckily for us, he documented it. He he had a camera and and these guys, I think, who wouldn't let anyone in there in a circle, no. Let this guy in, yeah. you know, and yeah. he was a smaller kid, little kid kind of followed them around yeah. and, you know, they liked him. Like his his wife ended up doing Axl Rose's and Axl's wife, um, Aaron. Oh. He, he did their hair at their wedding. I think. Oh, right. Yeah. Cool. <clears throat> Stuff like this. Nice. Yeah. But that's actually on YouTube. There's actually a lot of complete shows, you know, both audio and and filmed from the Appetite for Destruction tour uh, from 87, 88. There's a lot of stuff from 86. So there's a, there's a lot of treasures on YouTube when it comes to Guns N' Roses. And then you have those classic, the, the MTV. Um, Live at the Ritz. Live at the Ritz. <coughs> Killer stuff. Absolutely. Love that stuff. Hey, let's play a bit of music. Uh, this is Paradise City. Paradise City, Guns N' Roses on uh, Behind the Vinyl, the special, Appetite for Destruction. Um, Paradise City, of course, that, I think that was like, that one exploded over here in Sweden um, when that one came out. And that video was played on MTV every single day. Um, and Nigel Dick said it was, uh, well, it was recorded on the 16th of August, 1988, Giant Stadium in New York when Guns N' Roses opened up for Aerosmith. I love that video, man. Yeah, it's it's. I love that song because it you know reminds me of summer or I don't know what it was. Yeah. And uh, the thing was that um, they were supposed to um, where they, they they shot a lot of stuff where they went to Manny's Music in in um, in New York and so on. And um, Nigel Dick got called up by Tom Sutat 
uh, at Geffen, and Tom said that he wanted Nigel Dick to do a video with Rock City Angels. Do you remember those guys? I remember those guys. Uh, and he wanted him to do the video in Memphis. I don't know if they were from Memphis, whatever. But um, it was supposed to be done on a Sunday and Monday, and Nigel Dick said, that, well, you know I'm going to see Guns N' Roses on Monday and Tuesday in New York and shoot a video for them. And he just said, yeah, I know, but here's the money. You you work it out. And um, he ended up doing Rock City Angels. And Nigel Dick had to tell his cameraman, go with the band around New York City, film as much as you can, and uh, I'll join you Monday night. So all this stuff where they're walking around in New York City, the black and white stuff, Great footage. was yeah, was done by Nigel Dick's cameraman because Nigel Dick wasn't there. Uh, and then they fly over. There's stuff where you see they 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 get on the Concorde, they fly to England to play Donington. Yep. Um, Which was that the Donington of the accident? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that same thing, Nigel Dick wasn't there because there weren't enough money. So Nigel Dick had to send the cameraman just to, to follow around Guns N' Roses. And he had to stay back and go through all the stuff they'd filmed at Giant Stadium. Um, and, um, and then, of course, the accident. And the funny thing is that one of the guys that got trampled to death during the Guns N' Roses show, his name was Alan Dick. So Nigel Dick got a lot of phone calls from relatives and family and so on thinking that it was Nigel that had died Whoa. in that accident yeah shortly after I've never heard that story no before. and he also said that there's like for a for a brief moment in that video and when they're playing Donington there's a shot of the audience and he says that um, there's a face in the audience you see a guy and then he just like disappears and he said Nigel has always wondered if that was one of the guys uh, when the accident happened. Um, but he doesn't really know. But it was a tragic thing. It, it was a very tragic thing that was to no fault of the band. No, 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 not at all. Not not at all. And it was just a bad circumstances. Yeah. Two, two kids, right? Yeah, two was, kids, yeah. Two kids lost yep. their life. Yep. Um, I think Guns N' Roses, no one told Guns N' Roses what was going on. No. Um, through fear of the crowd rioting yeah. if they took the band off yeah. stage, if I think. Yeah. But... Um, Guns N' Roses just had a, an amazing show. Um, yeah. And the crowd just, they were so, the anticipation was so high and yeah. everyone wanted to see him. The crowd just went crazy. Yep. And it was a really muddy, slippery day. Yep. And um, and unfortunately, two kids like lost their step and uh, and got trampled to death. Yeah. And from what I understand, like Guns N' Roses were absolutely devastated by the news. I think there's a story. I think I read that not too long ago. There's a story about David Lee Roth in there. Really? Yeah, where he met the band after they'd found out about this and him him being yeah. a complete dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember. He's I remember laughing that. it off and, you know, kind of having a drink and <clears throat> something. I can't remember what it was. But. Having a drink at the bar. <clears throat> okay, this is, this is just coming to me now. Yeah. Yeah, having a drink at the bar. At the hotel. Yeah. And he went and joined Axel. Yeah, something. Having, exactly. And, and was very upset. Yes. And and David Lee Ross said, I don't know what he said, but something, something like, stupid, yeah. like, ah, 
you know what? Shit happens or something like Shit that. Shit happens yeah. or something like that. Yeah. I don't know what. Yeah. And Axel fucking freaked out. Exactly. And, yeah. You know? Yeah. Basically told him to fuck off. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and and everyone has to remember that this is fucking David Lee Roth, everyone's hero. Oh, yeah. yeah back yeah. then. Oh, yeah. So you've got a, a band on their debut album. Yeah. So although yeah. Axel Rose is Axel Rose now, yeah. he lived this way. Yeah. Before he was signed. Oh, he absolutely. He didn't give a fuck about anyone. No. You know? The thing is also that because Guns N' Roses played the UK before, they played in 1987. Played at the marquee. Exactly. I think that at the marquee is when they played Knocking on Heaven's Door for the first time live. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I think that show is out there as well. You can listen to it. I think they had a pretty adventurous time over there and it was yeah. very debauchous. And, oh, very. Yeah. Um, Mixed mix reviews. Yeah, um, yeah. I think even the album got mixed reviews. Yep, yep. Which is funny. Which is which is funny. Yeah, because yeah. it is. I don't know. It, it is. It, that- is a, it is near near on faultless record. Yeah, there's one or two songs which some people have said, eh, really that one. No, but I I like them all. I think I, all, I think that yeah. I think they're great. Yeah. Um, and what's what's interesting is that this band could write such an amazing. Record and selling record, and then following this, they ended up releasing uh, um, "Lies, Lies, Lies" yep. you know, as a bridge yep. EP, which I really like. Yep. <clears throat> but their next record was "Usual Illusions" yep. one and two, yep. and some of the biggest songs and the best songs, "You Could Be Mine," yep. "Don't Cry," yep. "November Rain," "November Rain," were all written. Yep. E- even "Back Off Bitch" were written for "Appetite for Destruction." Exactly, because I remember Rain wasn't on "Appetite." Because Sweet Child was there. Yeah. And it wasn't finished. It wasn't finished exactly. to, to Axel's liking. Exactly. I remember talking to Vicky Hamilton, their first manager, who said that she remembered they were doing, if it was a, a pre, a show or something, but she just remembered Axel Rose sitting down by a piano and playing November Rain. Yeah. And it was just this beautiful, beautiful song. And um, this was before Appetite, and it didn't end up on the album. No, no. Amazing. But, uh, yeah. Alrighty, um, let's, uh, let's play My Michelle. Um, great, great song. We'll talk a little bit about it when we come back. Yes. So my Michelle was uh, it was written about a friend of theirs, you know, who who yes. struggled with drug addiction. Yep. Whose father, I understand, is, was a porn producer. Yep. Something make, like that. Or are you using a film. porn store or something like oh, that? I had a porn store or something like that. Maybe should have done our research there, but um, and she was a she, I think, supplied the band with some drugs, and she struggled with drugs. Yep. Um, her name was Michelle. Yep. And uh, so that song was written about her. But that's also, that's because that's one of those lyrics that I remember me and my buddy, we were in school and we, I remember us, you know, memorizing those lyrics and writing them in, in school books and so on. And that was something that was totally new as well, that that, that whole thing of it being so real. Uh, you'd right. never listened to something like that before. 
It starts off with, your daddy works in porno now that mommy's not around. She used to love a heroin, but now she's underground. Um, that's fucking heavy lyrics, It is man. really heavy. Yeah. You know, that's not the uh, party anthem. No, no. But um, that, and I think that really had an impact as well because, you know, we, we'd been listening to, yeah, Poison and Motley Crue and whatever and Rat and all that, and they didn't sing like that. Not no. in those words. No, not at all. So this was something really new, really new. My my Michelle, um, also Sebastian Bach, when Guns N' Roses got back together, he went on tour with them. Their yeah. first, whenever that was, 2004, yeah. 2005, yeah. Whenever, yeah. whenever that got back together and uh, he would go out on the road and sing that song. Yes. My Michelle. Yeah. And and Slash is obviously a Gibson guy through and through. Yeah. You know, he, uh, he uses Gibson. He's got his own signature model, Gibson's. He recorded um, Appetite for Destruction with the what some people think is a Gibson, but it's pretty well known that it's not. It's a Gibson copy. He'd sold oh, all right. He'd sold all his guitars for heroin. Oh, right. And uh, hocked off a lot of his gear. Okay. So he actually had no guitar. So Alan right. even got him a guitar, and um, it was a it was a copy. I can't remember the name of the the guy who made it. Uh, huh. Um, but it was a it was a it was a copy of a Gibson Les Paul. Oh, okay. <clears throat> like a 69 Gibson Les Paul. Right, yeah. And so he, he used that record the majority of the record. Okay. The only time he used a Gibson was a Gibson SG and it was on by Michelle. Oh, right. Yeah. Cool. And it was a Gibson, it was a 1960 model Gibson SG, which was worth a fortune. Right. Which I, I guess he borrowed or yeah, got yeah. it from somewhere. He ended up throwing it out of the window <laughs> of, of the van just because for whatever reason. All right. Um, and again, you're not think we're not talking a band that sold a hundred million records. Now no. we're talking a band that had nothing. You know, so, dude. There's a picture of uh, isn't there a picture of Slash standing next to a van with a guitar through the windshield? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I got a feeling that that van was actually a rental van they they oh, okay used for a show or something. Right? And they okay. Trashed it and yeah. sent it back. Okay. Again, <laughs> that shit could never happen now. No, 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 no. But back then it. Seemed to yeah. happen a little bit more. Yeah. And I remember Vicky Hamilton, of course. I mean, she's got a book out as well. Came out like two years ago where she tells the story. But they lived with her or, you know, Axel lived there, I think. Izzy and Steven Sl- or Slash. Slash or, lived there for a while as well. Yeah. And um, she said also that when, when, Sla- uh, when, Axel, when Axel got mad or he threw a hissy fit or whatever... All the others just kind of ran away and hid because uh, he was just like too crazy. And that's a funny story. I remember, uh, I guess it's in uh, in Slash's book, whatever, because I remember Slash was on David Letterman or whatever it was. And um, oh, they talk about different stories. And he's talking. he talks about how Axel slept on his mother's couch or whatever it was. And, and then Slash... Then Slash's mother said something about Axel sleeping there. And then Slash and Axel are driving away in a car. And Slash brings this up to Axel that, you know, you can, whatever, you can make, you can make the bed or whatever, you know, when you, you'd be sleeping there. And he just answers by opening the door and he jumps out of the car when they're going down the, going down Sunset Street, whatever, like oh 30 miles an hour or something. Yeah, that was Slash's story. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> Which also kind of, Paints the picture of Axel Rose. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Oh, nuts, crazy. nuts, nuts, nuts. 
Um, already should we play another song? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was my Michelle. Let's play fucking without a doubt the 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 song that really did change it all, Sweet Child of Mine. Yes. <laughs> Child of Mine, Guns N' Roses. That's also the whole story with that. That 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 Slash was kind of just like fiddling around with that thing, and the others heard it, I think, and then they turned into song. I think it was Axel. He was upstairs. Yeah, and he was he Slash used to use it as a little bit of a warm up for his fingers. Yeah, and then Axel come down and went, "Hey, what was that? Yeah, what was that thing you were playing?" And yeah. he was like, "What?" And uh, and, and then that, that was a, it into a song. Yeah, and that was a massive one. Massive one. And Massive all, hit single. All of their girlfriends are in that video. Oh, yes. All of their girlfriends stroke yes. wives. I think um, yeah. it turned out to be Slash's first wife, uh, Duff McKagan's first wife. Yeah. Aaron is in there as well, isn't he? Axel yeah. Rose's first wife. Yeah. Axel. Uh, Aaron, sorry. Yeah. Aaron, Aaron Everly. Everly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the daughter of one of the Everly brothers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Wake Who Up Little Susie. Yeah. Wake Up Little Susie. And also, what's that song from um, Ghost? The, the movie oh. Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I can't remember now, but yeah. I think that main song is an Everly Yeah, might have been, yeah, yeah. Um, so they're all done. They're all in that. Yeah. And uh, it was recorded in a warehouse somewhere in just downtown LA. Yeah, and, and around that time must have been like the most played song on MTV. Absolutely. Because it was just like 24-7 forever and ever and ever. Absolutely. And whenever you turned on the radio, it was Sweet Child of Mine all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and the video. But there's, there's certain songs, like um, I was talking to someone about Metallica's Enter Sandman when it came out. Yeah. And they were saying, well, that was a departure from Metallica and not all the fans liked it or not right. many fans liked it and yeah. blah, blah, blah. I can remember when that came out. It, everyone was like, it was heavy. It was the only thing heavy at the time. Yep. That uh, that it just stood so far out. And I think Sweet Chuck, so far out above everything else. Yeah. When it come out. Recorded in an old dance studio above a bank All right. in LA, uh, which uh, Alan had found that studio, Alan Niven. Um and they shot it in, uh, shot it in a day, I believe. Yeah, I think I, and, I heard uh, that as well. And also, it, it was kind of funny because I asked Nigel Dick if there were like drugs and booze and girls during all those videos they did, but uh, he said that no, nothing really. He really had that as you know, always demand. the same. 
I am going to go and play that record now. I kind of joins in to hear that record. Hell yeah. I'm going to pour myself a whiskey and I'm going to listen to Appetite for Destruction. I love that. <laughs> Alrighty, man. Catch you guys later. Yep.